0: Welcome to Champagne and Murder, please. I hope you guys are having a good Friday. There's only a couple more days until Easter, which actually began as a pagan festival, but we'll get into that another time. For today, I have an Easter massacre for you. Very festive indeed. Well, at least for this podcast, anyway. Mark is out. He's not feeling well, so I guess I can let him rest. I guess. But he better be back next week. If he's listening. Which he's not. You better be back next week. Anyway, my champagne suggestion for this episode is Yellow Label Brute by Vieuve Cliquot. Don't know how to say it, but I might be getting some for my Easter mimosas. We'll see. But since Mark isn't here to play around and joke with me, let's just get into the story. So for today's story, it's the Easter Sunday Massacre, and I'm going to throw out a blanket trigger warning just just because you don't like murder on holidays, just, just see you next week. How about that? All right. So the Easter Sunday Massacre was the deadliest shooting by a lone perpetrator in the state of Ohio. James Urban Rupert was born March 29th, 1934 and was reported to have had a pretty rough life. His mother, who was named Charity, told him that she would rather have had a girl for her second child than him. Very charitable. His father, Leonard, had a violent temper and held little to no affection for his two sons. Leonard died when his sons were aged 12 and 14. Leonard Jr. then became the man of the house and the father figure for the family. He constantly picked on James during their upbringing, and he often taunted him for being weak. James was so unhappy with his home life that at age sixteen he ran away and attempted suicide by trying to hang himself with a bedsheet. He was unsuccessful and he gave up and went home. Rupert stood only five foot six and weighed in at one hundred and thirty five pounds, and he was described as modish, modish, <laughs> modest, bookish and helpful but unremarkable and quiet. He had no previous police record. By 1975, Rupert was jealous of his older brother's successful job and family. Rupert had dropped out of college after only two years. After that, he trained as a draftsman. Although, by 1975, he had no job and was unmarried, and he still lived at home with his mother. His older brother, on the other hand, had earned his electrical engineering degree, and married one of Rupert's ex-girlfriends. He owned his own home in Fairfield and had eight children. Rupert's mother was becoming more and more frustrated with her son's inability to hold a steady job and his constant drinking. She threatened to evict him more than once. Rupert also owed his brother and his mother some money, having lost what little money he had in the market crash that happened in 1973-1974. By his own standards, Rupert was as much a failure as his brother Leonard was a success. To make matters worse, Leonard was, at least in his younger brother's mind, a vicious sadist and torturer. In a word, he was the enemy. Going back to his early childhood, Rupert could remember his brother locking him in closets, tying him up with rope, beating him with a hose, and sitting on his head until he screamed out loud. The image only worsened after time. And by Rupert's 30th birthday, he was just beginning to see Leonard as the executioner, as a major figure in what he believed to be an emerging conspiracy against him. His paranoia really escalated in 1965 when the Hamilton Police Department determined that Rupert had made an obscene phone call to an employee of the local public library where he spent a lot of his free time. Although he admitted to making the phone call, Rupert was convinced that his mother and brother were attempting to discredit him by informing everyone of his transgression and reporting to the FBI that he was a communist and a homosexual. He also believed the FBI was tapping his phone at home and in restaurants and bars that he visited. Over the years, he felt the intrusion of the FBI into his personal life continued to grow. Other groups were also implicated by Rupert in the plot to sabotage his career, his social contacts, and his car. By 1975, he told psychiatrists of being followed by the state highway patrol, the local sheriff's department, private detectives, and even the Hamilton police. A month before the massacre, Rupert was asking about silencers for his weapons when he purchased his ammunition. His deep depression caused his behavior to deteriorate to near his breaking point. On his 41st birthday, witnesses saw him engaging in target practice, shooting cans with his twenty-two pistol and twenty-two rifle along the bank of the Great Miami River in Hamilton. The night before the murders, Rupert went out like he did almost every night. He talked with an employee at the 19th Hole Cocktail Lounge, 28-year-old Wanda Bishop. She would later recall that Rupert had told her that he was frustrated with his mother's demands on him and the impending eviction, and that he, quote, needed to solve the problem. According to Bishop, Rupert stated that his mother complained that if he could buy beer seven nights a week, then he could afford to pay rent, which is very true. Rupert left that night around 11 p.m., but later returned. When Bishop asked him if he had solved his problem, he said, no, not yet. After that, he stayed at the bar until it closed at 2.30 a.m., On Easter Sunday, March 30, 1975, Rupert's brother, Leonard Jr., and his wife, Alma, and their eight children, dressed in their Easter Sunday best, and ranging in age from four to seventeen, all came to dinner at their mother's home at 635 Minor Avenue. Rupert stayed upstairs, sleeping off his previous night of drinking, while the rest of the family participated in an Easter egg hunt in the front yard. Around 4 p.m., Rupert woke up and started loading his 357 Magnum, his 22 handguns, and a rifle, and headed downstairs. His mother, Charity, was preparing Sloppy Joes in the kitchen with Leonard Jr. and Alma. The children were mostly playing in the living room. First, he shot and killed Leonard Jr. in the head, and then shot and killed Alma. His mother lunged at him, and he shot her once in the head and twice in the chest. David, 11, Teresa, 9, and Carol, 13, were later killed by Rupert. James turned the corner and went into the living room. One by one, James shot his remaining niece and nephews. Anne, who was 12, Leonard III, who was 17, Michael, who was 16, Thomas, who was 15, and John, who was 4. The remaining victims were all shot once in the head and then shot again to ensure that they were dead. The only sign of a struggle was a waste basket that had been tipped over. The coroner for Butler County theorized that Rupert had likely shot some of his victims more than once to prevent anyone from escaping. The entire massacre was over in less than two minutes. After spending the next three hours in the house, Rupert finally called the police and he said, quote, there's been a shooting, and then he waited just inside the front doors for the police to arrive. The murders shocked the town of Hamilton. Those that knew Rupert didn't think he would be capable of such violence, especially at the magnitude of this particular massacre. By everyone's accounts, neighbors considered the Ruperts to be a nice family. Rupert was arrested and charged that same day with 11 counts of aggravated homicide. He refused to speak to the police and didn't answer any questions, and was in general very uncooperative. But he did make it clear that he was going to plead insanity. John Holcomb, the county prosecutor, viewed the crime scene and said that there was so much blood on the first floor that it was dripping through the floorboards and into the basement. Rupert had fired 35 rounds in total, and all four weapons he used were recovered at the scene. All of the victims were buried in Arlington Memorial Gardens in Cincinnati. One year later, the house was opened to the public, and the contents of the house were then auctioned off. Dozens of people came searching for bargains and bloodstains. They wound their way through the tiny backyard into the living room and kitchen and up the stairs into Rupert's second-floor bedroom. As eyewitness Nancy Baker reported in the local paper, quote, babies asleep in strollers, housewives and curlers, men smoking big cigars all added to the carnival atmosphere. It wasn't all fun and games, of course. The Rupert slangs provoked widespread panic and anxiety throughout the Hamilton area. The townspeople had plenty of questions, but very few answers. Until the trial, the local newspapers did little more than report surface information, mostly just the who, what, and where, but very little about the why. As if to fill the need for news, rumors were spread about, rumors which attempted to explain why the killings occurred and what effect they might have on the community. The house was then cleaned and recarpeted and rented out to a family in the area that were unaware of the murders. That family later left the house, claiming that they were hearing voices and other unexplained noises. But other families have moved in and out, and the house is still occupied today. The trial was held in Hamilton in June of 1975. There was a three-judge panel that found Rupert guilty on all 11 counts and sentenced him to life in prison on July 3, 1975. But a mistrial was declared because the panel didn't know if the ruling had to be unanimous or majority rule. It was decided the retrial would be held in Findlay, Ohio, 125 miles north, since it was believed he would not receive a fair trial in Hamilton. I wonder why. During the trial, curious spectators began arriving early in the morning, some as early as 6 a.m., to wait outside the three-story courthouse for one of the 60 seats in the warm and stuffy third-floor courtroom. They ran for the stairs and elevator, hoping to beat the crowds to the courtroom door, those that couldn't get seats stood around the walls of the courtroom or waited outside on benches in the corridors. For the duration of the proceedings, spectators in the hallways peered through the glass in the door, straining to get a glimpse of the defendant who sat impassively throughout most of the trial. Reporter Dick Perry later recalled, quote, It was a free show. A community can deny only so long after the occurrences of an extraordinary murder. As more and more information about the killings came to public light, Denial quickly turned to anger, and community members began to look for someone or something to blame. For several months following the slayings, people in Hamilton were profoundly outraged. After all, there were 11 bloody bodies, 8 of those were children, and an entire family whose members had been completely wiped out in one fell swoop. A close family friend may not have exaggerated when she told reporters, quote, Everybody wanted to go out and shoot Jimmy. I was always arguing for him. End quote. As a motive, it's reasonable to posit an economic motive. Under Ohio law, Rupert could not have inherited his victim's estate if he had been found guilty of murder. However, if he had been declared innocent by reason of insanity, he could have gotten everything. The second trial began July 23, 1975 and the prosecutors revealed the evidence involving the witnesses who had seen Rupert during his target practice, asking about the silencers and admitting that his mother's expectations were an issue that needed to be solved. And in July 1975, Rupert was sentenced to 11 consecutive life sentences. An appeal for a new trial was granted in 1982. Defense attorney Hugh D. Holbrook, convinced his client was insane, personally funded the hiring of expert psychiatrists, and psychologists from all over the country. Another trial took place on July 23, 1982, and another three-judge panel found Rupert guilty on two counts of first-degree murder for his brother and mother, but found him not guilty on the other nine counts of murder by reason of insanity. He received one life sentence for each count to be served consecutively. Capital punishment had been suspended in the United States from 1972 to 1976 as a result of the Supreme Court's decision in the Furman v. Georgia and the mass murders had occurred in 1975, so Rupert could not receive the death penalty. On July 30, 1982, Rupert, age 48, was incarcerated with the Ohio Department of Rehabilitation and Correction at the Frankel Medical Center in Columbus, Ohio. At age 61, Rupert was granted a parole hearing, but his release was denied. He received subsequent parole hearings in 2005 and 2015, and he was denied release at both. In 2015, the Allen Oakwood Correctional Institution Parole Board released a statement that said, The board has determined that the inmate is not suitable for release at this time. The inmate has not completed any recommended programming and does not appear to be willing to do so. The inmate's record notes negative institutional conduct. The inmate took the lives of multiple victims. There have been strong community objections to his release. The release of this inmate would not be in the interest of justice. We like to think of family as a crucible of love and affection. Hence, murder by the hands of a family member can be too much for the mind to fathom. What's more, Families are typically close units in which conflicts and disagreements are kept from the prying eyes and ears of outsiders. Consequently, people who consider themselves to be familiar with the perpetrator and his victims responded in utter shock. Rupert did live a frustrating life, but so do a lot of people, and they don't commit mass murder. By itself, frustration simply isn't enough to explain what Rupert did. June 4, 2022, at age 88, Rupert died from natural causes while incarcerated at the Franklin Medical Center in Columbus, Ohio. Rupert's next parole consideration would have been April 2025, and he would have been 91. And that is the Easter Massacre. And since it's Easter, almost, I will give you a little extra prize. Another story. Robert George Irwin was reportedly born in a tent on a camp meeting ground in Portland, Oregon. But in reality, he was born in the Arroyo Seco Park near Pasadena, California, on August 5, 1907. He was named for the river nearby, as well as one of his father's favorite theologians, Francois Fenlon. His full birth name was Fenlon Arroyo Seco Irwin but he changed his name to the horror of his devout evangelist mother to honor his philosophical idol, the agnostic Robert G. Ingersoll. His father, Reverend Benjamin Hardin Irwin, was a nationally known figure in the holiness movement and had founded a radically integrated radical holiness denomination in 1898 at a national convention in a legally segregated Anderson, South Carolina. He denounced everything from Coca-Cola to wearing ties as sinful. The group that Irwin founded is now known as the International Pentecostal Holiness Church. In 1900, his career was ended by a sex scandal with the fire-baptized Holiness Church, and then the senior Irwin went solo. In 1902, Irwin Sr. married Robert's mother, Mary Lee Jordan, from Texas, but he did not divorce his first wife. Robert's father left the family before he was three, which left the family impoverished. A family court judge noted that Robert could learn a trade at a state reformery, so he volunteered and spent 15 months there, and he learned to sculpt. Soon he idolized Laredo Taft, one of America's leading sculptors in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, and he later even moved in with Taft's family. He started working for a Waxworks studio in L.A. where he carved busts of President Franklin D. Roosevelt and other public figures. Irwin was considered brilliant if erratic and could at times be violent. His once He once tried to emasculate himself with a razor. After that, he consented to being committed to a state hospital where he stayed for a year. After his stay at the state hospital, he moved to New York City and stayed in a rooming house owned by Mary Gideon. Mary's daughter Ethel became the object of Irwin's infatuation, but his love for her was not reciprocated. He received more treatment for his mental issues for two more years at Rockland State Hospital in Orangeburg, New York, and he was released the summer of 1936, and by that time Ethel had married Joseph Kudner. That's when Irwin made a sculpture of Ethel with a cobra coiled around her neck. Erwin enrolled as, as a student at the Theological School of St. Lawrence University at Canton, New York, but he was expelled March 18, 1937, 10 days before Easter, for his instability. He then rented, for one day, a $2.50 a week room, which would be $44.11 in 2018, on 52nd Street in New York City. It was only a couple of blocks from Mary Gideon's rooming house. After he had considered and rejected the idea of drowning himself in the East River, he decided to walk to Mary's rooming house instead. March 28, 1937, was Easter Sunday. Relatives arriving to the Gideon's flat for dinner came upon the partially clothed bodies of Mary and her younger daughter Veronica's bedroom. In Veronica's bedroom. Veronica was a model that often appeared in seductive pulp magazine pictures. They had both been strangled, and Mary had been stabbed as well. In another room, they found the body of Frank Burns, who was a deaf English waiter. He had been stabbed many times. The resulting police investigation revealed shortly after 2 a.m., Charles Robinson, the upstairs neighbor, noticed the door to the Gideon's flat had been partially open, and so he closed it. At around 3 a.m., Veronica returned from a date drunk. Detectives concluded the assailant had been in the apartment before Veronica had arrived and waited for her to return. They concluded that Burns had likely been killed in his sleep. Police police initially focused on a driver and then they turned their suspicions to Mary's ex-husband, Joseph Gideon. But by April 5th, their attention shifted to Irwin, partially since there were two sculptures carved carved into bath soap discovered at the scene. There was a nationwide manhunt for Irwin That after that. Ethel Gideon, and Irwin psychiatrist, had expressed their doubts that Irwin was capable of committing murder, let alone three. The state inspector, John Lyons, said, quote, It makes no difference whether he committed 300 murders. So far as the state is concerned, his psychopathic background shows he is insane, end quote. In the later part of June, 1937, there was a pantry maid in Cleveland's Statler Hotel, and she saw a picture of Irwin in a Pulp Magazine article and noticed a resemblance to the bar boy, who had just started two months prior. His name was, quote, Bob Murray. After she asked Bob about his last name and if he knew about Robert Irwin, his locker was cleaned out and he disappeared soon after. And once again, the hunt for Irwin became the lead story on the front pages of the newspapers nationwide. The next day, the Chicago Tribune got a call from someone who claimed to be Irwin and offered to surrender for a price, but they dismissed it as a prank. The Chicago Herald-Examiner got a similar call, and they took it seriously. They made arrangements that Irwin would be paid $5,000 for the exclusive story and his surrender. After Irwin arrived at the newspaper's offices, the editor, John W. Dinehart, and his two reporters, G. Duncan Bauman and Austin O'Malley, kept Irwin in a room in the Morrison Hotel in Chicago, and they worked out the terms of a confession to the Beekman Hill murders the newspaper would publish as their exclusive, and they briefly shielded him from the police. He was flown to New York City, where he was turned over to police. It was then that famous New York City criminal defense attorney, Samuel Leibowitz, who had represented the Scottsboro Boys in Alabama and was reported to have saved 123 murder defendants from the death penalty, he showed up to be Irwin's attorney. In the published confession, it said he went to Gideon's apartment. Quote, I drew Mrs. Gideon's picture to kill as much time as possible. In comes this little Englishman. She introduced him to me. He went to his room. I said, I am going to stay here until I see Ethel, and she yelled, get out of here. I hit her, I choked her, all the time, this damned Englishman was in the next room just ten feet away. She put up a hell of a fight. My hands were full of blood. I smeared it on her, on her face, on her breast, and I threw her in the bedroom under the bed. Finally, Veronica came in. She went to the bathroom. I thought she was never coming out. I made a sort of blackjack out of a piece of soap in a cloth. I hit her, but the soap just splattered. I grabbed her from behind. I can very well believe that she was drunk because she didn't put up any fight at all. I took her to her room, held her just tight enough so that she could breathe. She asked me not to attack her. Please don't. I have had an operation. I strangled her. When Veronica was dead, I looked at her with a sick feeling all through me. Her beauty was gone. Blue death seemed to issue from her. "'like a sort of spiritual emanation. "'My brain was working so fast I could almost hear it. "'The Englishman. I must kill him, too. "'I stood for a moment over his bed. "'Asleep? But how could I be sure? "'I lifted the ice pick, point down, and struck struck. afterwards "'the newspapers I read that he had been stabbed fifteen times. "'I don't know. "'It was morning when I stepped out and closed the door. "'There was an overwhelming weariness all through me. "'I was so sleepy.' I could hardly walk the short distance around the corner to my room. I went in and dropped on my bed. It was not until evening that I was awakened by the cries of the newspaper boy Newspaper boy, below my window. They were yelling about a triple murder. It did not frighten me. I was as calm as I had ever been. I was sure that I would not be suspected. I was so sure of this that I didn't even make, take the trouble to move from the neighborhood, not for a week, End quote. From Manhattan, he took a train to Philadelphia, then by bus to Washington, D.C., by devious means to Cleveland, where he stayed until surprised by the pantry maid's question. Irwin had stated he originally intended to kill Ethel Gideon Kudner because she was the dearest object in the world to him, but accidentally killed the others instead. He said he went to Gideon's flat and had expected to find Ethel. In his confession, Irwin compared himself to a radio, saying, quote, Bob Irwin is nothing. I am only a receiving set, an extremely imperfect one, which can indistinctly tune in the divine mind. You have heard a radio that isn't working well. You turn the dials and get a squawking. Only once in a while can we get the pure, clear music. My whole idea in life was to perfect myself so the receiving set could always get the divine music at its best, end quote. Hours after Irwin was taken into custody, he was indicted for three counts of first-degree murder. Contrary to Lyon's initial view that Irwin was insane, New York now said he was normal at the time of the murders and said he knew the nature and quality of his acts. The office of the district attorney, William C. Dodge, announced it would seek the death penalty. The judge postponed the trial in September of 1937 to wait on the results of a three-member commission of inquiry evaluating er- Evaluating Irwin's sanity or lack thereof, the commissioners concluded that Irwin was indeed sane, and the new district attorney, Thomas E. Dewey, resumed the prosecution. Irwin's trial date was in the fall of nineteen thirty eight and William A. Adams, the warden of the Tombs Detention Center, said Irwin certainly isn't crazy now; he's as sane as any man in prison. Lebowitz replied that Irwin was is and always will be hopelessly insane. He's as crazy as a bed bug. The crime, the investigation, Irwin's arrest, and resulting court proceedings were heavily publicized, often with the eye-catching photos of Miss Gideon and the headlines describing Irwin as the mad sculptor. Veronica left behind a portfolio of sexy photos that, in retrospect, had absolutely no relevance to the crime, its cause, or Irwin's responsibility for it. However, That coincidence kept the story on the front pages of newspapers around the country for months at a time, and the publicity ultimately helped bring Irwin into custody. Publicity again picked up as the trial date came closer. One news account reported that not since Harry K. Thaw murder trial had a cause excited wider interest. Soon after a jury was selected, Irwin pleaded guilty for the three counts of second-degree murder in exchange for avoiding the death penalty and also that a pair of pants he left in a suitcase at Grand Central Station would be returned to him. He's a strange bird. Irwin was sentenced to 139 years to life in prison by Judge James Wallace, 99 years to life for the slaying of Burns, 20 to life for the slaying of Mary, and 20 to life for the slaying of Victoria. He was sent to Sing Sing Prison for a psychological evaluation, where the prison doctors ruled him very definitely insane. On December 10, 1938, he was taken to Dannemora State Hospital. Irwin's enduring legacy involves the way that newspapers exploited his crime by sensationalist headlines and racy photos, all culminating with a paid confession that just about put him into the electric chair. In the aftermath of the crime, New York Daily News publisher Joseph Medill Patterson responded to the criticism of the sensationalism by editorializing that Murders sell papers, books, and plays because we are all fascinated by murder. He defended the news's choice to give the story greater attention than President Roosevelt's failed attempt to pack the U.S. Supreme Court by explaining that perhaps people should be more interested today in the Supreme Court than in the Gideon murder, but we don't think they are. Irwin died of cancer in 1975 in Meadowan State Hospital for the Criminally Insane in Fishkill, New York. And that is Robert Irwin. Thank you for listening as always. We appreciate you. If you have any stories you would like to send in for us to read on the podcast, you can email them to Please at gmail.com. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. We hope you have a great Easter weekend and you get to spend some time with family. So until next week, stay safe and don't take candy from strangers. Unless it comes in little plastic eggs, then you should be fine.